there is something to it that this pandemic has brought people more into their local communities and thus realizing that, oh, in order for us to be, you know, sustainable in this local community, there's a bunch of things that we could do that we're not doing today, that we're like neglecting and always pushing ahead and saying like, now we'll look at that someday into the future. Hello and welcome to Secret Leaders. Today's guests are beating two different sides of an incredibly meaningful drum, that of tackling one of the global issues of our times, our attitude towards food waste. And I'm joined by my wonderful friend, Sasha Celestial One of Olio, and hopefully a new friend, unless I pronounce his name wrong, obviously, Yalmar Stahlberg Nordegren of Karma. How did I do? Perfect pronunciation. We're friends. Yes, yes, pals. Buddies. Okay, now instead of me explaining what their companies do, in my words, this is a perfect time to get them to describe their own companies and missions. And as many of you will have heard Sasha before in her previous episode, we're just going to start with you, Yalmar. So over to you. Oh, wow, thanks. Um, so we help restaurants, grocery stores and cafes, bakeries, you name it, uh, upload their surplus food at the end of the day and resell it to consumers. We've been at it since uh, 2015, feels like a long time now. In the beginning, people were uh, very sort of against what we were doing and saying that food waste is a normal part of the chain. It's not something that needs fixing. Uh, but when one third of all food is thrown away, even more so in, in some countries than other, we felt like it was a perfect time to start doing something about it. So uh, we've been at it ever since. And uh, it's a it's a fairly straightforward concept. You download the app, you find what's available around you, you purchase it for half price off or less, and then you go and pick it up. And what was your background with you and your co-founder? How did you guys meet? If we can get a, a little a little summary of that, please. My background is is pretty odd for being in the food business. I'm a medical doctor uh, from Stockholm, Sweden. Um, I've been programming since the age of thirteen. Been doing all kinds of weird projects and and stuff. And I think started a project during med school that was like an evaluation system for, for doctors when, when you've seen a patient. And that turned into like a, a mini startup that eventually turned into a real startup. And we had 20 employees at best and raised some capital. And it, I sort of it opened a new world for me that like, oh, you can actually build stuff from the ground up. That's still around. It's called Responster, and it's a it's like a, a simple version of a type form or survey monkey. But um, yeah, that got the taste for building other things, and was the sort of initial or the start for Karma. Um, so uh, my primary co-founder Elsa uh, and I met when Elsa had just sold her previous company called Pop Fruit. So she, it was basically a fruit turned into a popsicle. So. They set up production in Vietnam, I think, and it sounds unethical, but they were really like taking real uh, fruit and they shock froze it on site and they sold it as an alternative to ice creams and no additives. Uh, they had like fair wages, made sure that there was a, a sustainable both production and shipping line. And uh, yeah, she had just sold that company to a British company called Elementary, I think. And um yeah, she was looking for the next opportunity. I think she had been off work for three or four weeks and was climbing the walls uh, and looking for the next thing. And uh, yeah, we found each other. And um, I had just started the Karma Project together with uh, two other people from Response to called Ludwig and Mattis, who were product and tech leads. So 
the four of us got together and were sort of the initial batch for Karma. Amazing. Okay, thank you so much for sharing that. Now, uh, Sasha, obviously, people that will be familiar with the show will know your awesome story. So we won't go into it too much. But if you could give a little introduction to yourself, just in case, please. And obviously, Olio. Sure. So for those that don't know, Olio is um, an app that connects neighbors with each other to give away for free food and other household items that they no longer have a need for. We are very complementary to what Karma is doing in that we are also tackling the massive global scandal of food waste, but we're really focused on in-the-home food waste, which accounts for um, 50 to 70%, depending on how you measure it, of all food waste. So that's Olio. We have also been going since 2015, and it does feel like a very long time. And I teamed up with my sort of best friend and co-founder, Tessa. We were both at sort of a natural point in our life where we wanted to spend our time doing something more impactful um, at scale to, quote unquote, make the world a better place. And fast forward to today, it's just beyond, um, to be honest, it's really, really shocking, actually. I don't know if I would, would say it's amazing how far that we've got. I'm really proud of it, but it's just the tip of an iceberg. We've got so much further to go. Okay, that's the perfect introduction. Thank you, which means we can get on. Now, as you know, the reason I'm excited to have you both on is because I want us to have a conversation for listeners where we can learn together about the problem of food waste, what's happened since the pandemic and how that might have changed things in the world, how you're both handling this as companies and what we're going to be predicting for the future. So on that note, I guess let's start from the top. And you know, interestingly, as we do have a guest calling in from Sweden, one of the more experimental countries with its approach to the pandemic. So how has COVID-19 impacted you and Karma then, Yelmar? And is it very different uh, in Sweden to, for example, England, where you're also operational, where I'm a customer? That's a, that's a very good question to start with. Um, um, you feel almost like you're, you're in kind of an experiment here in Sweden. It's... Um, People sort of portray Sweden as this country who is unhinged during the pandemic and everyone's running around coughing at each other. And uh, it's it's not really like that. I think Swedes are pretty by the book when it comes to if someone from the government issues like, here's what we recommend you to do, that's almost a law in Sweden. So when they said, like, we recommend people to work from home if you can, there is actually a significant difference with people out and about in Stockholm, where where I'm from. So if you go out, you notice a significant decrease in people running around. And if you look at karma, which is dependent on people going and picking up stuff, I think we, we've we seen something like a 30-40% decrease in transactions in Stockholm. And if I compare that to, um, uh, say, London, where we also are active, that would be that would be comparable to London's minus 95% on some of the worst days during the pandemic. So... I believe you have a much more strict lockdown, but even Sweden's recommendation is clearly having an effect on uh, on how people move around. But it, but yeah, but on a day like this, today is like one of the first real summer days, and I just uh, passed a, a park on my way where I am now, and and uh, it was as if you couldn't tell there was a pandemic going on, which is kind of scary. I'm back in England, our resident American. What about you, Sasha? With, without without trying to sort of take advantage of a, what is arguably you know a, you know an incredibly horrible global situation, it's been such a blessing in disguise for Oleo. We have seen week on week twenty percent plus weekly growth figures um, in terms of engagement, listings, number of user sessions. People have just 
really taking the opportunity while they're at home, while they're conscious and very aware of the fact that they have you know, neighbors living nearby who might not have access to food, um, who might not have access to other household essentials. It's been pretty amazing, actually, to see how people have sort of jumped, you know, using the app in this occasion when they're at home to double down on sharing. Now, of course, we had to put in place really strict guidelines with regard to what could or couldn't be shared. For example, when only essentials could, when you could only go out daily for essentials, we restricted sharing to essentials only. We've also had no contact pickups in place um, since the very beginning, and a lot of we have you know really detailed guidelines on how to do that. It's like there's a lot of people who had downloaded the app previously and said one day I'm going to get around to using that. This happens to be the time where it becomes very you know obvious that um, sharing your surplus with someone nearby is just the right thing to do. In addition, we launched two different campaigns. We launched a Cook for Kids campaign, which um, we got over 20 celebrity chefs signed up, including Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, Melissa Helmsley, James Martin, and a load of others. And they created recipes, and we encouraged our user base to um, cook for families and for children who were at home from school and who would have otherwise um, had access to a free school meal. I think we've had, I've lost track at this point, but probably in the tens of thousands of meals um, that have been um, specifically designated as hashtag cook for kids. Um, and we also did a cook for carers campaign in partnership with the NHS. And that was, um, that that's actually worked out. You know, people have really stepped up and said, okay, here's a really easy way that I can, while I'm at home, do something concrete and meaningful for those people who are on the front line. So yeah, it's actually been a really good experience really good for Oleo in terms of strengthening our community. And have you found that it's been an increase, like you mentioned earlier, it feels a little bit like people have just sort of turned up and realized that they uh, always said they'll use it later and now they will. Have there been an increase in downloads or is it more an increase in users? There have been an increase in downloads. We crossed the 2 million signed up users mark a few weeks ago and our organic daily, our organic downloads are really strong. Um, We've also leaned into this and, um, taking the opportunity to invest in a uh, London-wide four-week-long radio campaign. And we've actually just today really decided that we're going to do some TV campaigning, um, to do a TV campaign as well. And that's because, you know, all along the funnel, we're seeing significantly improved um, metrics, whether it's sort of cost of install to conversion to onboarding, conversion to transactional, number of listings per user. I mean, everything has just ticked upwards. Dare I say, without jinxing myself, we've actually used, you know, sort of the word product market fit more than once in the last in the last couple of weeks. Like we're feeling there's this real sense of acceleration that's, um, no matter how much we're sort of get excited, our growth and analytics person sends us the week, you know, the daily update about how we're doing. And we're like, oh my God, it's even better than we could have hoped. Um, so we're trying to lean into that and take, also take advantage of historically low um, media costs, which um, make it really affordable to advertise out of the home right now. And, you know, not to, uh, I mean, obviously you're, too, you're both too lovely to have any kind of competitive streak like this, but Yalmar, I'm assuming that you heard some of that stuff and thought, God damn it, I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always jealous of... of uh what they're up to you're you're always up to really really good stuff and i think like the the community angle that olio has is super impressive uh, but uh, it's it's a uh, it's a good kind of jealousy it just makes me want to work harder not to destroy someone 
yeah, we'll call it admiration. I, exactly. I admire, I admire your business model. I would like to point out, um, and also your, you know, fo focus on sort of having <laughs> a you. having a monetization strategy from day one. That was pretty smart. Um, so, but Car but Karma and Olio are very complementary, um, and we've, you know, not to go into detail here, but we have spent quite a bit of time talking about how we can work together um, more closely, and that is a work in progress right now. Yeah, and I mean, that's exactly what I expected of two such admirable companies and founders. But what I want to talk about a little bit is, so in one sense, like I understand the relationship of, uh, that we're hearing about in, like you say, in the home um, and how people are buying extra for other people in their neighborhood. And that is like a beautiful community spirit. Um, what do we actually think is going on with the like, the food waste problem so to speak overall in this in this period so if you can zoom out from your specific company insights um and looking at the data because you know Hyama, you said earlier you know about a third in some countries of all food that's sold is wasted uh do you think that that's probably the same during the pandemic do we have any insight into what it's actually been like either of you i think it again one third is like the global average in some countries especially industrialized ones waste way more than that it's 40 plus percent in some of the latest u.s studies um so i i don't think we're heading in the right direction unfortunately and, and during the pandemic we've seen two differences outside of our own business one being there's a massive uh wastage of uh fresh produce so like fruit and veg um you know, farmers are standing there with massive harvests that are not getting picked up because the grocery stores three ways, um, three spots down the line are saying like, no, we're not buying anymore because we're selling less than usual. So there's a massive sort of supply demand problem within the food chain right now, with pu which pushes surplus up the chain. And I imagine what, what Sasha said with so many people being at home, we've heard... Uh, anecdotally that the food waste in the homes is is more under scrutiny now than ever because people are not used to cooking at home you know seven days a week but now there's it's the the perfect storm for like trying to figure out your cooking schedule and using everything and and i think that definitely produces food waste at least initially until you've sort of found your equilibrium i don't know what you say sasha but uh, but the, it's like at the top and at the bottom of the chain I would say that there's a lot of disruption which and a lot of conflicting trends and some of them seem really positive and others are cause for concern. So we you know there's lots of research showing that people um, so RAP did some research that showed a 23% increase in the percent of people who agree strongly that food waste is wrong and that they have a role in minimizing it. And they've also done a bunch of research here in the UK to track people's food waste sort of before and after. And there's been a 34% decre decrease in the home in terms of things like wasted milk, potatoes and bread and other really commonly wasted foods. On the other hand, um, when people were uh, sort of stockpiling in the beginning, I'm convinced that there's sitting a lot of non-perishable food and you know pasta and tins of lentils that people thought that they must buy um, but actually they have no intention of ever really cooking sort of in this in, in, in the next year or longer and it's just gathering dust um, and ultimately will end up sort of you know getting thrown away or, and becoming food waste we've seen a real breakdown in the uh, and a lot of stress on the 
the charitable institutions and the nonprofits that provide food to vulnerable populations for a whole variety of reasons. But those organizations are largely run by volunteers who are largely in the age or vulnerability bracket of needing to be able to stay at home. Um, simultaneously, we've got so many people who have been um, let go from their employment, who, um, for whatever reason, you know, may have previously sort of been on, on the breadline, quote unquote, and now are actually really, you know, classified as food insecure or in food poverty. So we've got less charitable institutions, less sort of food available. Food banks have been shutting all over the country, right, just when people need them the most. Um, and so I think that that stress and that tension has been exasperated by the pandemic, which is really unfortunate. Um, so there's a lot of different trends, some, some, some positive and, and signs of hope and that you hope that there's new behaviors that will be sustained in, you know, when things return to normal, quote unquote. But there's also a lot of near-term shock what, that has resulted in um, large quantities of food going to waste, which is so painful to see when there's also more people than ever who who might need access to that food. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. What are your what are your guys' general fears for your industries with this you know a huge shift in mindset and experience for people? Do you think it's going to end up in a positive or a negative? Well, I mean, let's start with a negative because I've asked what your fears are. So let's start with the fears. I can just say from from our perspective, one of the fears that we have at Karma is that food waste was just sort of bubbling up to become this 
thing on the agenda that was, you know, non-ignorable. You couldn't say like food waste wasn't, it wasn't okay to say like, yeah, food waste is part of the, part of what I do. But during a, a potential economic downturn, I think that food waste will again sort of be pushed back a little bit. And you say like, no, surviving comes first. And during a downturn, I think that food waste will take a backseat again, which I, I, I hope that doesn't happen. And I hope we can prevent that. Because if you handle food waste right, you can it can actually be for your economic benefit, or like it definitely is if you do it right. So I hope it's not excused as like, no, that's to do number 15 on my list. We, we need to bump that up and make people realize that taking care of it is actually part of, of having a sustainable business as a whole. I would agree that that's a very valid concern that there's a lot of other competing priorities now um, from a business business perspective, from a government perspective, et cetera. I think one of the things that has become really clear to us during this is that whilst Olio and our original mission, and it's still at the heart of, of, of what we're trying to do, is about reducing in the home food waste, um, the way we do that is through community and that asset that we have has, it, we've realized that that's actually probably what we need to double down on from a positioning perspective and also from a, I'm just going to say like a use case perspective. So bringing the community together to reduce the stress that we put on our environment, um, to reduce, reuse, recycle, borrow, lend, make, you know, do all of those hyper-local um, sustainable, planet-friendly, um, you know, so supporting a hyper-local, sustainable, planet-friendly planet sort of economy, right? Right now, everything is for free, but you can imagine there might be other elements to our value proposition that it's really meaningful for at the hyper-local level to enable the community to look after one another. Um, I'm a total optimist, so I really, really hope and believe that, you know, as cheesy as it sounds, that there is a silver lining for, through from all of this. And I don't know if you guys know about Earth Overshoot Day, but it's the day in the year every year by which we have used up all of the resources the Earth can replenish that year. And it started back in the 70s on December 31st, and it's been moving forward every year. And last year, it was July 29th. Well, they've just released a few days ago that actually it's been pushed back to the middle of August, the third week in August, simply because of the decreased stress, the less carbon emissions, et cetera. So hopefully there's some type of environmental wake-up call that falls out of all of this and that maybe we do realize that we can, you know, live a, a slightly less wasteful, I guess, and, and um, lifestyle as a society. But that does result in big shifts. You know, my kids hasn't been in school for over three months and they've basically just been told he's not going back to school till September if I'm lucky. So that really restricts me as an individual, for example, to go to an office. And, and my boyfriend is actually a, big, a property manager. Well, if, his, if no one's coming to his office, there's only so long they're going to keep the office open. If no one's going to the office, there's only so many restaurants that can stay open to support the office workers. And there are all of these downstream effects that we haven't even begun to unpick or to... Or to um, so I think that it's a really complicated situation um, and we're nowhere near, you know, at the end or on the other side of it. I think you just touched on something really interesting, which is, you know, call me, I'm not a, I'm not in any way a pessimist. I'm actually also a massive optimist. But I guess whilst I was listening to you, what I was thinking is a lot of the times that people start to think about how to contribute better to society, do better things, it starts to be when some of the, um, 
you know, ground under them feels safe and secure when a lot of the uh, security is there, you can start to think about how to contribute better in society. And I suppose, you know, potential, obviously, the benefit of this, like you just said, is everyone indoors, you know, the amount of environmental impact in a positive way, all of a sudden, you couldn't possibly mandate it any differently from government top down to actually get the positive results we've been having. But that being said, uh, with a lot of uncertainty and people not understanding how to have the headspace to think about how to contribute better and actually having to figure out things like you just said, that can sometimes have a really detrimental effect on what we prioritize because people will be forced to prioritize what they feel is important and that might well not be the global environment at that point. To play on on Sasha's point there, I, I think that she's absolutely right that people being at home and, you know, getting a little extra time, maybe it's the time that people today take to commute, but we don't at all have the type of community that Olio has today, but we have something that we call the ambassador program, which is basically if you're located anywhere in the world and you would like to bring karma to your city, and basically be the the spark there to start the what we call the zero food waste generation to actually influence people around you to you know go to your local coffee shop and say like hey don't throw that stuff away like put it up on karma instead we can actually help you get it started there and we've seen a massive uptick in interest across the globe there was someone calling in from we have like an onboarding for for people who want to get started and there was someone calling in from Auckland yesterday went up like 2 30 a.m in the morning uh, just to be on this like swedish afternoon onboarding call to see how they could help contribute locally so there is something to it that this pandemic has brought people more into their local communities and thus realizing that oh in order for us to be you know sustainable in this local community there's a bunch of things that we could do that we're not doing today that we're like neglecting and always pushing ahead and saying like now we'll look at that someday into the future and another sign for that and sorry for, for that i keep talking but another sign of that is that when we saw our business go down due to a lot of our restaurant clients uh, closing shop we actually uh, went ahead and, and talked to some of our other partners that we've been working with like um uh, wholesalers and farmers that for years have said like how do we get on karma we haven't really found a good solution but now during the pandemic a lot of them came back and said like hey we have so much waste can you help us somehow and we put together something that we call the karma box which is just we help them take fresh produce off their hands which is often it's like ugly produce from farmers we put it in a box and we we go in and say like hey instead of subscribing to that you know the perfect fruit box for your office or even for your home if you're at home now we can offer you a box that's actually you know made from the ugly fruit and veg or like the stuff that was going to be thrown away and we've had a massive massive requests of to to get this box delivered to you just because people I think people take a little extra time to say like okay now if I'm at home how can I be at home sustainably I think people have more time to reflect on the lack of sustainability in their everyday lives yeah I mean that actually doesn't surprise me at all I guess you know you guys are both talking about your businesses in, in different ways you know one of the one of the compliments paid back to you Yalmar was your your well thought through business model from day one and I guess one of the big challenges that people think about when they think when they think a little bit about the food waste problem is who's going to pay, as in what is the business model? My question to both of you 
is are you concerned about your business's longevity and health and business models and how are you thinking about adapting them? I mean, you know, Sasha, for example, you talked about doubling down on being a community, but as far as I understand it, you know, communities are also relatively difficult to monetize if they're not Facebook. So I, I guess it's a really interesting uh, question for both of you, because obviously any listener listening in that might have, if they're lucky, had experience with either of your brands would want you exactly the types of businesses people want to exist. But what is so irritating is sometimes they don't pay for them to exist. So there is this, you know, interesting dichotomy and in you as the entrepreneurs, it's your responsibility to figure out how to make them work. So I guess we'll start with Sasha, if we can. Absolutely. Um, we have to, you know, we're, we're, we're not a charity, we are a VC backed uh, startup. And we, we also want to be profitable at scale. Um, so this is really something we spend a lot of time thinking about. We are a marketplace. Um, and we are a social, a hyperlocal social network, and you know both of those things. There's a lot of wisdom around not monetizing too early, and so we have sort of held back at the risk of sort of constraining the growth of the network, you know, monetizing that aspect of it. But what we have done uh, for the last two years is we've monetized a different part of our program, which, um, without going into too many details, we we recruit food safety train and match volunteers with businesses who, after they've tried to sell everything they can, including many times through the Karma platform, at the end of the day, after they've closed their doors, they still have edible food that is going to waste. They donate as much as they can to charity, but the reality is that the charitable sector cannot absorb anything more than you know 10 to 20% of the surplus that occurs at the end of the day at retailers across the UK. So we have 10,000 food safety trained volunteers um, doing several thousand weekly collections from supermarkets, high-end you know, retailers like Selfridges. Um, we work with Pratt and Costa and lots and lots of different businesses who have made public commitments to achieve a certain level, often zero, amount of store waste. And they've recognized that the only way to do that is to redistribute the food to the local community. And so those volunteers pick up that food, they take it home, they add it to the app, and then neighbors come around to their house and they pick up that food, or in this case, through like a no-contact food whatever safe box. Um, what that does is we, that's a revenue hack because obviously they pay us for that service. It's a marketing hack. Um, it's a zero cost acquisition channel because basically food that just had a price tag on it is now being made available on Olio for free. And word about that spreads very quickly. So it means that people are coming to the system looking for that free food. But it also is our best chance at converting people to becoming and giving back and adding back to the community themselves. So people who pick up food that was donated by a business are four and a half times more likely to add a listing themselves within the next 30 days. And it's a, it's a low it's an easy way to become transactional. And it, you meet a neighbor, you realize that they're nice, their host, home is clean. Not in this case, no one's opening doors, but you get my drift, you know, you have a nice exchange. And the urge to reciprocate is really strong. And then you are, you know, you are part of the community. Um, and that's what we really need to do is to get people 
to list. That's our sort of big, our North Star metric is listing. And our biggest challenge is getting people to list themselves for the first time. Demand has always been insane. So that's not part of the problem. And we will though, and we've been pushing it off for a while, to be honest, but we do have plans to introduce a freemium version of the app. So it'll always be free to get food. But if you are a super user of which we have many who are, you know, picking up listings hundreds of times a month um, and getting enormous value of free food, um, then if you want access to some super user features, um, then you can pay a monthly um, subscription in order to get access to that. We're also, we work a lot with brands who are starting to pay us to distribute um, stock that is past its best before date in exchange because they look at our community and they see 2 million people who care about the environment, shop, um, want to shop sustainably, um, are interested in being introduced to ethical brands, products, and services. And so we've got a real sort of um, B2B marketing opportunity where we introduce our community to those brands and products. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. I feel like you've just defended the entire business. I mean, the, the, the Food Waste Heroes program, which was our first form of monetization, is, you know, if you look at the, like, TAM and the scalability and the, you know, the potential is the smallest pillar. So we, we have, there's a, I'm not even going to go into a few others, but we sort of have this, like, pillared approach that we, we introduce at the point at which we're at a scale where monetization makes sense and it's bringing value to all of the stakeholders. And we don't want to monetize just for the sake of monetizing. Not that it's not important, but we're trying to make sure that we do it when it's legitimately bringing value to, to our community and to, and to the brands and to, to everyone else. That makes sense. And I guess, you know, Yama, you've mentioned your, I mean, it's just very obvious for me, I guess, how you make money. I'm assuming that you charge the food retailers and restaurants, etc., cetera, uh, for using the product. Is it a commission? Is it a monthly fee? It's no monthly fee. It's only commission-based. So we want everyone to have like a free chance of, of trying to sell their surplus. I mean, if we can't help them, why should we charge them? We usually pitch it the other way around. So if you join Karma, it's free to join. If, if we manage to sell something for you through the platform, you keep 75% of whatever you sold it for. We have two criteria. One is that it's surplus, and two is that uh, you list it at 50% off or less. And this is sort of a self-policing function. So we've seen other platforms making so that you can list it for 30% off, but then it becomes sort of a marketing platform. 50% is right where if you start listing your original inventory at 50% off, you're going to do like plus minus zero on ingredients and, and labor costs. Uh, so it really is the sort of sweet spot for actual surplus and it helps not make this just, you know, another food marketing channel, which is very important to us that it's actually surplus. I was just going to say, I think it's really important to your customers too. And that, that integrity that you guys have in your model is, is um, ultimately, um, you know, going to really serve you well, um, because I think customers really value that. Yeah, thanks. I mean, you, you wouldn't imagine how many times we've had to defend the 50%, like, especially in the early days and entering new markets with, uh, you know, talking to big retailers, they've been like, no, 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 we're going to list our stuff at 30% off. And we've said, like, why? If this is truly surplus, 
you should be listing this at 95% off and still make more than you than you would if you were to throw it away. So why would you ever push to, you know, be able to put stuff up that you could produce to put on the platform? So it's been a fight, but uh, yeah, we're, we're very careful to not change that 50% off mark. I obviously get the vibe from Sasha, understandably, uh, that Olio is thriving. And I know that Olio was already a remote team predominantly anyway. So I guess that leads me to ask you, Yalmar, how have you handled this as a team culturally, emotionally, financially? What have you, have you basically been trying to fix lots of things? Have you been trying to strategize new ideas whilst this moment passes? Or, you know, how have you, how have you generally approached this from a leadership point of view? Good question. I'm going to try to answer it shortly. Um, just the one more thing on the actual model, which I think is important, is that the selling surplus for 25% commission for us, that's our short-term play. And we've been playing it since day one. Uh, and it's it's great for our survival and, and growth. But our long-term play is, is not at all, or basically our, the, in the best world, we would actually not charge at all for selling surplus because we are now getting to the point where we have so much data on individual items that we can rather say, if you pay to use Karma, we can actually make sure that you optimize your surplus reduction. So if you share your inventory statistics with us, we can say that, oh, it's 4 p.m. and you have 27 croissants left. You need to start listing them uh, for a lower price if you want to end up on zero waste at the end of the day. So we actually have created algorithms that help you taper off your inventory so you end up on zero by adjusting price, adjusting production, et cetera. So we can actually make sure that food waste doesn't occur in the first place. Of course, there will be some, but we can definitely get that down. And to, to answer your uh, strategy question, we've been, uh, uh, since we haven't had oleous growth, rather uh, on the opposite, we've seen some of our customers have to to shut down for a while or temporarily pause. And um, we've then spent the extra time instead of, you know, calling a stressed out restaurant and say like, hey, you should take a closer look at your surplus. We've been uh, looking at these adjacent ideas that we've been talking about for a long time, like all this fruit and veg, for instance, that uh, we're getting calls about all the time. Uh, can we do something about that? And we created the Karma Box, which now has we launched it three weeks ago, and it has over a 1000 people subscribing on it weekly. It's a start. And um, it's also a way for us to map out the actual food waste problem where where food waste comes from, how we can move it around within the food value chain to make sure that it's it ends up somewhere where it's actually used and not landfill or anything else. As a team, it's been uh, it's been pretty challenging. We're a pretty close team. We're not that remote originally. Now everyone's remote, and I think we've done fairly well, or we've done really well, everyone's happy, but I attribute a lot of that sort of resilience to the culture we built before the pandemic, uh, the face-to-face -face culture that we've been able to to build. And it's not like we, we don't have a remote culture, we have people working remote full-time, but it's definitely been useful to have this sort of tribe feeling uh, in the company, especially during trying times and when people have moved from selling towards restaurant to the other day saying like, hey, how do you actually deliver a, a box full of fruit and veg sustainably? Or how do you receive 1.7 metric tons of turnips 
if you don't have a loading bay or not even a venue to accept it for to redistribute. So I think uh, the learning curve in combination with a great team spirit from the start has been really helpful. So like a separate episode on how do you return 1.7 metric tons of turnips would be uh, a real eye opener for everyone. And, uh, you know, the only listener might well be Sasha, but it's almost worth doing. <laughs> I guess just just starting to uh, to wrap up, it'd be really great just to get some insights for what tips you guys have for other leaders currently running businesses to make the world a better place. Because, the, and I guess the reason I say this is, again, I know it's, it can be quite challenging to convince investors that, you know, there's a credible business model and there's credible market demand. And hopefully these things are changing, but more and more people looking to go into entrepreneurship now are actually fortunately doing so with an eye to improve the world. So you guys would be absolute role models for them. So if we can start with you, Sasha. Sure. And I just, I'm so sorry if I'm sounding smug or, or anything. I mean, we've definitely had several weeks of absolute panic that that neighbor to neighbor sharing you're is American. going to you just can't help it <laughs> just we, we we have had to make some difficult decisions just very quickly so in the sort of some of our fledging international markets that were you know really in the infant need a lot of hand holding stage you know going into lockdown basically decimated um, a few of those areas where we've said, you know what, we just it's, we have to take it off life support now because um, what we had sort of built up, remote, you know, built up and got going, it's just went from you know enough to keep it going to just completely gone. So there have been some painful moments. Um, with regard to tips for other sort of social impact entrepreneurs, um, I think it's really important that your commercial and your social objectives are 100% in lockstep. Um, so that you don't ever sort of risk having to choose between the two. So for us, the more that is rescued and shared, and let you know that's that means less goes to landfill. That's our um, our environmental and social um, outcome. Um, but by definition, that increases the value of the network, and so there's no conflict. I also think it's important to try and pick um, a really scalable and sizable problem to tackle. If something's too niche um, or not can't be replicated um, in a very scalable way, um, then I think you're just even more burdened than you would be in, in, with a different sort of more commercially oriented idea. And of course, as always, find a co-founder or co-founders who are a hundred percent obsessed with your mission and, and are you know willing and, and recruit for mission. So we we always recruit for mission first. Um, you know you can train people and upscale people, but you sort of, you can't train passion and mission alignment. I couldn't agree more with that tactic, by the way. Like the first, the first, uh, one of the main lessons we learned before starting uh, Heights and learned sadly from the last business um, is our first interview is always just a 30 minutes on values. It's just a values judgment call, full stop. So important. Technical skills, really not as important. Yalmar, over to you, please. Yeah, so just to, to follow up on what Sasha said, we've definitely had trying times and made some difficult decisions as well. In, uh, in, a, in a podcast, it usually sounds like everything's like uh, roses around you and it's going flawlessly ahead. And uh, it's definitely been tough navigating the, the, um, the markets right now. But on uh, actual recommendations, I would say like why you would want to be an impact company or a, first of all, I hope that all companies are considered impact companies and it would be like 
the opposite would hold true in a couple of years where you say like, oh, that's a non-impact company uh, of, of someone who's not working sustainably or with something that's actually sustainable. And uh, impact and sustainability is where everyone is going. It's where everyone wants to be. If you ask someone like, where, where do you see yourself? It's like, oh, I want to work with something that means something to me. And with the, with the a rising number of, of those companies uh, building up, I think it's it's just like if you're not an impact company, you're not going to get any talent. So I think they will slowly dissipate over the the next decades. Hopefully, the other thing is definitely agree on the on the mission. You need to be relentless on what it is you're building, what it is you're doing, and why everyone's here. It sort of goes hand in hand with with people wanting to work for impact. Finally, I would I would probably say like. I've seen a lot of sustainable startups in the last couple of years starting without a proper business model. And I'm not saying you need one from day one, but you need to be in an area where a business model can be applied. And it's usually in my, this is just my personal opinion, but you need to understand uh, what's the value of the thing you're solving. So in Olio's case, for instance, I think it makes total sense to say, hey, we're solving so that people can actually get something to eat. And food is something that takes up an enormous part of the average person's wallet, which definitely then means that like, however you you end up monetizing is there is a way to apply a business model for solving such a problem. Whereas I've seen other startups, which is like, oh, we've built this amazing scanner where you can scan products in the grocery store and you see the CO2 impact. And to me, that's just like, oh, it's, it sounds great. But if you look at like, what would someone pay to get that automatically solved for you today? And I think that's significantly less than they would pay for a meal, for instance. So just having a somewhat thought through business model or the ability to actually apply a business model, I think that's critical for a sustainable startup these days. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, the the sad thing is in this in this space in general is if you're not able to create something like that with some sense of longevity and sustainability in the business model and therefore the people that you employ, etc., in a weird, twisted kind of logic, you're actually doing more harm than good because you're creating extra space and noise and technically product that actually isn't solving stuff. And I know it's a really harsh way to look at it, but it can also be quite a practical framework to think through. Hmm. I, I I value that viewpoint because and I completely agree. And actually, we're sort of on the back foot sometimes as a, as a sustainable startup having to to sort of justify why it's really important um, that the sustainability is at the heart of whatever it is that we're doing. And when we have people with good intentions but who haven't necessarily thought things through come along, it does add noise and it actually can be you know, have a bit of a ripple effect. Like you need to be able to demonstrate that you're a hardcore capitalist and still be able to do something that's that's going to have a positive outcome without jeopardizing the commercial outcome. That's right. So it can sort of, you know, have a ripple effect or maybe make a bad impression on people who would have been a bit suspicious about the whole sustainability thing in the first place, walk away thinking it's a bit fluffy when actually you need to, we need people, we need everyone to demonstrate that this makes good business sense. You don't have to choose. Completely agree. And I feel like that's a perfect way to end to remind people that capitalists can care about the environment too. Here, here. Good news all around. Thank you so much for joining me, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. 
Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray Serta, producer Rich Martell, editor Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and marketing by Hannah Russell of Mags Creative, and stunning visual design by our talented designer Christina Naru of SmartUpVisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming live events on our website, secretleaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we'll add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.